You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. In an isolated sector of our solar system, Suspended in orbit around the sixth planet from our sun lies a distant outpost, a technologically perfect world where mistakes are impossible because the impossible is unthinkable. It is called Saturn III. Each year for 22 days, a solar eclipse plunges this outpost into shadow lock. Total darkness. All communication is terminated. This year, the inhabitants of Saturn III are about to experience the unthinkable. A nightmare so perfect it could only have been made by man Captain, Major, this is my partner. There are only four inhabitants on Saturn III. One of them is not human. And welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone. And today we are going to look back to a movie that some of you might have seen. It kind of keeps popping up every now and then. If you dig really, really deep into your Netflix or Amazon, I think specifically Amazon, uh, you'll be able to find it under the, probably under like the 450th selection out of 500 of possible uh, science fiction films that they have there in the deep, deep archives. And this is a movie called Saturn 3. 
It's really what could be considered a bad movie, but it is so bad that it's good in terms of how much effort it got put into it and how it completely kind of falls apart in many different ways. But it is still kind of enjoyable to watch. I guess you can call it a little bit of a guilty pleasure kind of movie. But what's also even more interesting than the movie, I think, is the background of how this movie was made. And that is something we're going to go look into during our discussion today. And as usual, this is going to be a very spoiler-heavy territory we're going to cover. Then after that, we're going to jump over to our collectible segment and talk about Raiders of the Lost Stark Kenner action figures. Yes, believe it or not, there was an actual Kenner line, not as classic as their Star Wars line, but they gave it a try. They tried something different, and I'll go over some of the ones that are available that I own a couple of them. And, you know, how are they different than the traditional Star Wars figures or even the other brands, your Mattels, your Migos, you know, all those other brands, you know, how do they differ And, uh, you know, how far did the line go? So let's get our cheese fest started with Saturn 3. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you always. Today we are going to look at a science fiction film that is neither a classic or memorable. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, some of the other films we like to look at here, we also many times go in the opposite direction. And, you know, this is a kind of film that might be in somebody's guilty pleasure list. And there are certain aspects of this film that are interesting, full of potential, but never really achieved any sort of... (laughs) success or uh, or whatever it was they were trying to achieve, you know, got there. The film I'm talking about is called Saturn 3. This is a sci-fi futuristic film uh, starring Kirk Douglas, Farrah Fawcett, and Harvey Keitel. Many of you probably never heard of this film. Some of you might have, have some recollection of it, and some of you might be very familiar with it. The way I heard about this film, if I remember right, was kind of like through a back channel in terms of when Terminator came out back in, geez, 85, I think it was, 85, I think. You know, I became completely obsessed with that film from so many different aspects. The story aspect, I was enthralled by the story, the, the, you know, the time traveling aspect of the story, the special effects, you know, the way that this low-budget film managed to come up with these amazing special effects. The pacing of the film, the the non-stop action-y kind of pace that obviously, you know, became one of the trademarks of James Cameron. And the production value, you know, in terms of, like I said, the special effects, the construction of the of the main robot prop, you know, that that we finally see at the end of the film. You know, I remember I tried drawing versions of it myself and trying to figure out all the different parts that made it up. Because you got to remember, this being a 
low-budget film, there was no merchandising, no making of specials. There was nothing about this film. And later on, obviously years later, the merchandising arm of this film started coming out, especially with the sequels, Terminator 2, and so forth and so forth. And then you were able to get better looks at the design of some of these you know, robots that they made for the film, the cyborgs. At the time, all I had to go on was the rental of the film. And this is back when rentals, at least for me, were something new. You could go to the store and rent it. I used to rent from a store that wasn't a chain store. It was a little mom and pop, kind of small, dinky, somewhat frightening looking place. And I do remember that very soon after I started renting films, you know, owning a, a VCR for the first time, I would start copying everything. Once I figured out that you can copy these things, you know, the copy protection wasn't, you know, <laughs> all the way in yet at the time. And uh, most films didn't have any kind of copy protection, but you did have to deal with the generation loss. So The Terminator was definitely a movie. I grabbed, copied it, and then I would go frame by frame to try to see exactly, you know, how the robot is put together and everything. And I tried to draw my own schematics of it and that sort of thing. But I absolutely loved it. So the interest in the background of The Terminator, meaning the background of these large size robots, time traveling robots, let's say, kind of threw me in different directions of research. You know, I found some other earlier movies that kind of dealt with that. I found some, I think it was Outer Limit episode that kind of had a similar storyline. And part of the research into films that had to do with large size, you know, robots, let's say human size robots or bigger, you know, kind of led me to this movie. At one point, I might have been in Starlog magazine or something. I don't remember if it was a magazine or a TV special. I think it was a man. I'm pretty sure it must have been something Starlog related. They posted, you know, the history of robots on film and, you know, the large size. Okay, you're Metropolis and you have uh, uh, Robbie the Robot. And then amongst these other more current ones, more contemporary ones, there was a picture of what appeared to be some kind of headless robot and it said Saturn 3. So I'm like, what the hell is Saturn 3? And sooner or later, I was able to, I would imagine, maybe rent it. Because again, I can't even remember when I first saw this film. I probably rented it, I imagine. Or maybe saw it on HBO or something like that. I finally got around watching it. And this is a kind of weird story. The film, first of all, came out in 1980. So without giving you too much of the behind the scenes, because I am going to give you that in a little bit, which you're going to see the flip side of everything with, with the behind the scenes. But the film is basically a pilot is supposed to deliver this cargo to a moon of Jupiter where some... All right, wait a minute. Did I just say Jupiter? The movie is called Saturn 3, and I could not remember Saturn. This is proof that by watching this awful film, I am now permanently brain damaged. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Anyway, back to the plot. Scientists, workers are working on 
food having to do with supplying the earth because the earth is having trouble uh, generating enough food for everyone. So he's going to deliver some supplies, some materials that are needed. Before this pilot is ready to take off on his mission, another pilot who apparently is unstable, psychologically unstable, kills the pilot and takes his puts on his flight suit and pretends to be him and he is the one that instead goes up you know on the mission to resupply these people upon arrival we meet the scientists or i guess there's some form of scientist uh, that are living in, in one of these moons are kirk douglas and farrah fawcett they're played by those two actors and they're kind of like a couple now granted the, their age difference is really different he's twice as old as her and the pilot that arrives to deliver the supplies let's say is played by Harvey Keitel. An unusual kind of like, whoa, what's he doing in this movie? Now, this is 1980. This is before Harvey Keitel had this, I don't know if you want to call it a renaissance, but he exploded in the, I guess, the, the mid to late 80s into the 90s. And, you know, he's he had a whole career that kind of flourished, you know, through the late 80s. But he was an ongoing actor. You know, he was a working actor all through the 70s and, 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 you know, he had a whole other life. Now, so I can't really tell you how successful he was at this point when he made this film. But it is him and he shows up and he's, he's this character. And he's playing his character really weird because, you know, they're kind of, hey, happy to see you. You're here to give us some supplies, whatever. And he's like, no, I'm here to uh, uh, deliver this uh, robot that I have for you. And uh, uh, by the way, the robot is going to take the place of one of you. And, um, you know, I'm, you know it's kinda, he's like... <laughs> He's kind of like shrinking, shrinking the employment uh, pool here. He's here to, to have one of them replaced. Okay. So he's going about assembling the robot, and these other two are going about doing their normal work. They kind of don't trust him a little because he's a little shifty. You know, Kaitel is a little shifty, and we do know that he just killed somebody, uh, you know, to, to take the place to come to the, on this mission. Now, as soon as he gets off the, the ship, he's already eyeballing Farrah Fawcett. Now, remember, this is Farrah Fawcett 1980. This is Farrah Fawcett pretty much as hot-looking as she was in the 70s when she became super famous. You know, with Charlie's Angels and whatever the hell it is, you know, the photo spreads that she did and all the modeling and this and that. So, right off the bat, the conflict begins that he's kind of looking at her and, and saying really weird things to her. Sexual things, you know, and as the movie progresses, this robot is built and the robot is has some kind of a link to Harvey Keitel himself. He has this little chip in the back of his head where the, he can control the robot and the robot is absorbing information from Keitel. And the conflict continues to escalate between him and Kirk Douglas because, you know, he, he keeps telling her, you know, that he's an old guy. What are you doing with him? You should come back with me and blah, blah, blah. And this whole thing of, of her leaving there and kind of leaving Keitel with the robot, which I guess that's the point, which I'm not entirely sure uh, what Keitel's plan really is. But they get to a point where the robot starts to kind of go nuts. And part of it is because he is absorbing the personality of Keitel. So you have that problem taking place where this machine that they just created, you know, you got to remember the overall theme here is kind of like Frankenstein's monster. The, the Frankenstein is a reflection of the doctor. And in this movie, the robot, who, by the way, his name is Hector, and he's supposed to be the first of the Demigod series. Okay, interesting. And 
you got to keep in mind, yeah, when you see a picture of the robot, it's a pretty impressive looking built robot. It is way taller than a human and it really has no head. It has kind of like these prying eyes on a, on a clamp and like this small mechanical arm right on top of the head area. And it's super strong. It's very slow. <laughs> and behind the scenes, you're going to know why he's so slow. But yeah, so the robot starts to exhibit all these kind of psychopathic tendencies, kind of like the, like uh, Kaitel's character. And eventually the robot kills the little dog that the, that they have in there. And he attacks Farrah Fawcett's character and they kind of disable the robot. But in the process, the robot then starts to kind of attack everybody. So at a certain point, the movie becomes a cat and mouse chase between the robot hunting them down, and then hunting the robot down. Now, obviously, this is going to be full of spoilers because, you know, I'm, I have to tell you how crazy this movie is. So, at a certain point, the robot turns on his master and kills him. Because uh, as they're being chased around the space station, they can hear Harvey Keitel's voice through the intercom, but then when they actually get there and see the robot, the robot has Harvey Keitel's head attached to the robot's body. So you know that, okay, I, I he killed him. He killed him and chopped him into little bits. The movie gets to a point where, you know, it's the final fight and, and there's nothing left they can think about, they can do. They try throwing the robot in this pit of, uh, uh, like, a frozen water type of pit. And then the robot comes out all frozen and still walking after them. And then finally, I think what happens is Kirk Douglas attaches some bombs to himself and jumps on the robot and jumps into that water frozen pit again and blows them both up. And he and the robot die, finally. And Farrah Fawcett is the only survivor left at the station. And we then see her on some kind of transport kind of heading back to Earth. So you could say that, okay, this... It's an interesting movie, okay? I see what they're trying to do. There's plot holes all over the place, but there are certain things that are kind of good about the film, and there are certain things that are not. And you can tell right off the bat that this is how films kind of fall apart. If you didn't have those three stars, I would say... Now, granted, I don't know, like I said before, I don't know how much of a star Harvey Cartel was back then, but... Farrah Fawcett and Kirk Douglas. Okay, Kirk Douglas, again, I don't want to say he was a has-been, but he wasn't, you know, the Kirk Douglas from, you know, the, the 60s and the 70s. He was an older gentleman. He was 64 years old, I believe, when he did the film. Farrah Fawcett was probably the biggest draw, I imagine, in terms of being a contemporary individual, not necessarily a box office draw in terms of, my gosh, she's so accomplished, you know, on screen. Her character is a pretty ditzy kind of character. She is there basically for TNA. That's the bottom line. She's there for her, the TNA appeal because she is, she was basically, you know, the sex symbol of the seventies. And now they're putting her in a film. You know, I saw her also on Cannibal Run. Now I absolutely love Cannibal Run and her character is pretty much an idiot in Cannibal Run. And I can't really tell if. She was that ditzy in person. I mean, I would have to watch some interviews. But here, she's almost just as ditzy, maybe even more. And, and again, I don't know if she's playing up the ditziness of her character. 
or that's just her personality. I don't know. I know she did some serious work afterwards, and and she did she did get some you know acclaim, some television movies and that sort of thing. But at least at this stage in her career. Now the other thing to keep in mind is that behind the scenes around this time, you know, like I said before, she was coming off of her all her television success. And was trying to kind of break into films and wasn't having any good roles being thrown in her direction. She had done another film, I think, uh, before that didn't get anywhere. And this one really didn't get anywhere either. And at the same time, apparently she was going through her the beginnings probably of her divorce with Lee Majors, the $6 million man. So this was kind of like a rough time in her life. And this was, you know, another shot at film. Now, if we look at the making of this film, how it all started, it has a bizarre background and, and a bizarre making of history. The film was originally conceived by John Barry. Now, John Barry, to me, is a music composer, but John Barry is also a production designer for Star Wars, I remember. Well, this is the production designer for Star Wars, not the music composer. This was a very accomplished production designer who, before Star Wars, he had worked on Clockwork Orange. He has a lot of films, but a Clockwork Orange, Star Wars. He also did Superman, and he had even begun preliminary work on The Empire Strikes Back. So the guy knows how to stage things, how to build these mass sets. And in this film, you can kind of see that, that, yeah, the sets do kind of stand out. There are certain things that are very well done here. So the way that it apparently happened was that he and a producer-director friend uh, named Stanley Donnan talked about, you know, the possibility that, you know, he had this story and he wanted it made. And Donnan said, you know, that's that's a great vehicle for you to be able to maybe direct yourself because he had done some second unit directing. You know, a lot of a lot of these guys do a lot of different jobs and and that's how they end up being, you know, directors sometimes is by hopping from one job to the other to the other, working your way up to that. So he had started working on the story even before Star Wars. And then while he was doing Star Wars, he started putting together a first draft. And then he was doing, I believe, Superman. And he continued working on this first draft of this story. They then took this first draft to another more seasoned writer named Martin Emmis to kind of rewrite the script, to kind of punch it up, make it a little more studio appealable, let's say. At the time, the story was called The Helper. It wasn't Saturn 3. And after they had that script ready, they brought it to movie executive Lou Grade. Now, this is taking place in England, keep in mind, because this is a British production that's taking place. Lou Grade really didn't look at it too deeply. He started to kind of look at it. And apparently the story goes that on his plane ride back from somewhere, you know, he was heading back and he had Farrah Fawcett near him. And he just kind of blindly said, hey... Are uh, you interested in doing a movie? I got this script. You want to take a read at it? You know, you, know, you want to take a look at it? And she said yes. And she read it and she was interested. He kind of committed to working with her in this movie and then turned around and said to them, you know, when he got back, okay, let's do the movie. He committed to it. But it's funny that he committed to making this movie already with Farrah Fawcett, you know, attached as the female lead in the cast. Apparently, a lot of other writers then started kind of tinkering with the script because they were never really happy Grade was never really happy with the fine, you know, whatever script he had in his hand. So he kept tinkering and tinkering, giving it to many other people. So the the story changed many, many, many hands before it got to the point of starting to film. And the estimated budget at the time was $10 million. 
For the lead character, the Kirk Douglas character, many actors were interviewed, but originally they were thinking of somebody like Sean Connery or Michael Caine, and they were both approached, and they both turned it down because they were both living outside England in order to avoid paying certain taxes. This was a period where a lot of actors in, in England, because their taxes were so high, they purposely lived abroad. So they couldn't come work in England uh, because of that. They did a lot of work outside of their own country. Not only did they live, but they worked outside their country so they could keep most of their money you know, to themselves and not have to pay the taxes you know, the, that England was charging at the time. So yeah, they both turned it down. But at one point, they approached Kirk Douglas and he was like, yeah, let's do it. One of the things that they talk about, and what I'm referencing is a couple of articles I read online, and there's one very specific one from a website called Saturn3makingof.com. That has so many cool, weird, bizarre stories about the making of this film. And you'll notice it on the film that there is this very thick sexual thing happening between Farrah Fawcett and Kirk Douglas. It's a little bizarre because of the age difference, again. But for whatever reason, Kirk Douglas is always, his character is always demonstrating like his virility and he has a somewhat nude scene in the film and he even wrestles Harvey Keitel (laughs) butt naked completely butt naked he's wrestling with Keitel so there is a a weird vibe to the film (laughs) to a lot of the scenes yes you do end up seeing Farrah Fawcett somewhat naked at one point this is an R-rated film and Yeah, that is the whole point of having Farrah Fawcett in 1980 in a film, is her looks. You know, she doesn't have too many acting chops on her. They're basically selling the film on her looks, on her model appeal, you know, wink, wink. But for some reason, apparently behind the scenes, Kirk Douglas kept encouraging them to be able to use him more you know, shirtless or nude at that point. You know, he wanted more nude scenes, apparently. I don't know why. Some people are saying that maybe, you know, he was going through this period where he was kind of prove how young he really was, even though he was in his mid-60s. I don't know if this is some kind of midlife crisis he was going through. But it's also part of the character, you know, the character that he's playing. I think his name was Adam is an older man that is being challenged by a younger man, you know, for the control of his woman who is half his age. And yeah, the age-wise, she does more, you know, match up with Harvey Keitel's age, even though Harvey Keitel wasn't a wasn't that young looking anyway. He was Harvey Keitel is a, is a guy that usually looks old <laughs> even when he's young. But in the movie you do see that thing. And but it, it but you also kind of like Notice that, yeah, why why is Kirk Douglas, like, always trying to kind of get naked (laughs) in the film? So, that that is one of the things they talk about that it was bizarre, weird behind the things that was happening, you know, during the making of the movie. Now, apparently also, you know, during the filming of of the movie, uh, there were a lot of days where apparently Fire Fawcett was ill and couldn't film, and that also could have had to do a lot with her breakup that was happening at the time with Lee Majors, you know, and all the other problems that were happening, you know. There was a lot of behind-the-scenes, behind-the-scenes stuff going on that delayed this movie's production and slowed it down a lot. So they start filming, and about two weeks into the production, it's announced that John Barry will no longer be directing the film. So this is a little weird. You know, this is very weird to lose your director already two weeks into production. And there were a lot of theories going around as to why that happened. One theory or one person suggested that 
he did not spend too much time on the set that he liked to do his most of his work kind of behind the scenes so that he wasn't very present on set to be able to do things that has been disputed by other people you know that's that's what the producer was saying his friend that's one of the things he said who would eventually then take over the production donnan ended up getting directing credit because he had to then jump in and direct the rest of the film another point of view is that he spent too much time working with the robot the robot had so many problems. I think it was kind of like Jaws in terms of there were so many breakdowns and trying to get this thing to work right because most of it was remote controlled and they couldn't get it to function exactly the way they wanted it to. As you could see in the movie, it moves very slow and it's very clunky and it's very hard to believe that this thing can actually catch anyone in any shape or form. But, you know, sometimes it looks like there's a person maybe inside, but most of the problems they were having was whenever they tried to do any sort of remote control or wired control or anything like that it was very difficult apparently there's also a rumor that in between the period where barry left the film and donnan took over kirk douglas started directing part of the film too which leads to yet another theory that barry leaving the film was something that might have been orchestrated by douglas on purpose because he wanted to kind of take over and start directing I mean, again, those are just rumors between different people that are associated with the film. So John Barry, in the meantime, he leaves the film and, you know, in a very kind of sad and depressed way, goes back to working on Empire Strikes Back because at the time he had already started working on Empire with the condition that he could leave to so he can direct this film. So he's allowed to kind of return to Empire and continue to do some work there, you know, with the set buildings and all the design. Because he was only gone for two weeks. So Empire is really not, you know, hasn't really revved up that much. But unfortunately, when he got there, he worked for about two weeks. He got sick and he died, which was a devastating turn of events. You know, this poor guy, he just got his butt kicked trying to direct his first feature. And now a month later, he's dead. So apparently he had infectious meningitis. Again, people speculate that partially he got sick and partially he was just so stressed out and depressed that the illness might have just completely, you know, engulfed him, uh, where normally he might have been able to get over it. But, you know, his his immune system was so low, you know, from the experience of, of this disaster of a film that he started working on that kind of did him in. And it's a real shame, you know, this man would could have been a promising director. You know, he had won an Academy Award for his work on Star Wars. And I guess this kind of thing sometimes happens. So back to the movie now. They're continuing with Donnan. And you got to also keep in mind that Donnan, he was a movie director, but he had no real experience in sci-fi. Like his, his biggest claim to fame was Singing in the Rain. He did musicals. So... He probably wasn't the best person also to deal with this film, but because he was so closely attached to it, you know, with his friendship with Barry, he was the guy, unfortunately, on the helm to continue. So through the rest of the production of the film, they have many, many problems with the robot. Like I said before, the mechanics, the electronics, all that stuff slowed the production down quite a bit. They were able to do a lot of scenes with a man inside the suit, but it was just very difficult to work all the electronics and all the kind of like puppeteering parts and all that stuff, the remote control stuff, very difficult, slowed everything down. 
Uh, Harvey Keitel's spacesuit that he wears, uh, especially when he first arrives, also had a lot of problems. Pieces kept popping off of it left and right. It looked awesome. It was a cool-looking um, suit, but yeah, it was just a bit of a mess uh, trying to figure out how to keep it together. There was a number of scenes that were cut in the film. And one particular scene is a scene that eventually made its way into some of the advertising and some of the behind-the-scenes promotional stills of the film. And basically what you have here is Farrah Fawcett wearing this kind of like an S&M kinky outfit. And this is part of a sequence in the film that was completely kind of removed because of, allegedly, her request. What's happening in the movie is this. You have Keitel, you know, every five minutes trying to hit on Farrah Fawcett's character, which I believe her name is Alex. So in one of those exchanges, he gives her this blue pill. And, you know, he's trying to encourage her in every which way to sleep with him. And he's being very matter-of-fact about the fact that it's no big deal. You can just do it. We do this all the time on Earth. This is how things are done. You know, you're just so unusual the way you're reacting to it. And he's like, I even have pills that will make you forget what just happened. You know, we can all, they can all forget what, you know, even even your, uh, your, your boyfriend can forget what, you know, everybody can forget what happened. So it's like, okay, that's interesting anyway. So he gives her this pill, but she doesn't take it. But instead she brings it to her apartment, let's say, her living quarters, with Kirk Douglas, and they agree to kind of split this pill. So, in the movie, what we see is them splitting the pill, and they're kind of dancing and kind of frolicking around, more or less, and then we cut to the door opens, and there's the robot, and there's Harvey Keitel, and they (laughs) they start yet another fight between Harvey Keitel and Kirk Douglas. But the original sequence had them doing that same stuff you know they're they take the pill the pill starts to take effect it's i don't know if it's like some kind of ecstasy or some kind of you know weird you know psychotropic pill or something like that anyway so they take the pill they start to drink they start to dance they're frolicking around like i said before just like in the movie and then at one point she's like hold on i want to i want to show you something so she goes off camera and he's there drinking some more and acting really weird for a man his age and she comes out wearing this bizarre-looking S&M outfit. And she's like, this is what I'm going to wear when I go to Earth. And he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. You should do that, and blah, blah, blah. And she's posing for him and doing all this kind of stuff. And apparently what happens is that as they start to kind of get a little more romantic, let's say, Harvey Keitel appears. Now, some of these scenes do exist, and I'm going to put links to it because they were deleted scenes, and they are showing up on YouTube here and there. Some of them are, you know, the the extended sequences are not, but there are pictures on some of these websites that show you that this stuff was filmed. So Harvey Keitel appears and starts kind of trying to, kind of trying to maybe get it on with her, even though Kirk Douglas is right there in the room. And Kirk Douglas will not have any of it. So all of a sudden, Kirk Douglas uh, takes his bottle of whatever he's drinking or glass and he breaks it and he shoves it into Harvey Keitel's neck and basically kills him. And they're both there kind of reacting to what just happened. And then all of a sudden the door opens and there's the robot and Harvey Keitel. In other words, where we left off with the actual final cut of the film. I think the implication is that the drugs that they're taking are making them imagine, or, or at least him, that he's in the room and he's going to attack him and fight him and that sort of thing. So 
that whole sequence was completely cut out so that they do get interrupted before any of the weird outfits come out. <laughs> and I could be wrong, but I believe that might be the sequence that leads to him wrestling naked with Harvey Keitel. Again, this is a bizarre movie. So, again, from what I kind of was able to look to see why the scene, or at least part of the reason why the scene was cut out, was I think at some point Farrah Fawcett said, this is ridiculous, I don't want to be seen in this outfit. It's kind of ridiculous. But, you know, the scene exists, it's still out there. Would it make the, the film any better? Probably not. <laughs> it probably wouldn't help. But it's out there. Ironically, they did use a picture of her, you know, full-blown picture of her in the outfit for some of the international posters of the film. The other problem was any kind of violence. You got to remember, this is a British film. And the British have a different uh, take on the censorship that we have here in America. And that is, they are more open to nudity and sexual situations, but they're more closed to violence. So, there were certain scenes that I'll talk about a little later that just had to be removed because it was considered to be way too violent. And in the manner in which in this kind of dream sequence, let's say, or hallucination sequence, Kirk Douglas just shoves the uh, the broken bottle right into Harvey Keitel's neck and is gushing blood everywhere. I think that was considered to be a little too violent. And uh, yeah, obviously the, the producer of the film, the, the, the guy that they the executive, uh, Lou Grade, he was like, no, 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 we can't have anything that violent. So there was a combination of reasons why that whole sequence was removed. The other problem they had during the movie, and this is something you will notice when you first start watching it, is that Harvey Keitel's character sounds really weird. His voice sounds unusual. You could say, wow, he's doing a really unusually different accent because, you know, he's got kind of like a street, uh, New York, Brooklyn type of accent in most of his film you know he talks like this you know he's got this you know he's got that that speech pattern but here he sounds almost british uh reason being was that there was some kind of problem between kaitel and lou grade and uh, again this is just rumors that they had some kind of fallen out which resulted in when it came time to do the looping the audio dubs you know the the re-recording of the, a lot of the audio lines kaitel refused to do it so what they did instead was they brought in another actor named Roy Dorsey, who starred in a couple of episodes of the original Space 1999, and they had him redo all of Harvey Keitel's lines, and that's why he sounds so bizarre in a lot of sequences. It just doesn't, it's just not, something is off, you can tell. Aside from the fact that there are certain scenes where the dubbing looks a little weird, you know, the, the, the lips don't exactly match the voice at some point, so you're going to you don't get that, that kind of like kung fu theater <laughs> style of delivering lines. Uh, but that was, again, one of these behind-the-scenes feuds that apparently happened between Kaitel and, and some of the people in charge. Uh, apparently, they removed the total of about 15 minutes from the film, bringing it down to, you know, close to the hour-and-a-half mark, 88-ish uh, some minutes. Uh, but there was a lot more in the movie. Uh, like I said before, that whole hallucination, kinky outfit sequence. Uh, there was a whole other sequence of Kirk Douglas taking the robot out to the face of the moon that they're in and uh, trying to perform some tests, you know, some moon rocks or whatever, some, you know, some MacGuffin. But the robot starts to go nuts outside, disobeying, and he, uh, like, blows up a door hatch so douglas is having trouble getting back in to the 
compound. And this is after the robot then comes back inside, which again, in the finished cut film, we don't see any of this. Douglas is outside, but he's practically on his own at that point. But this is the sequence that leads to Farrah Fawcett being, uh, you know, grabbed by the arms and threatened to, uh, the, the robot is threatening her more or less after he, the robot kills the dog. And uh, this is the sequence where they actually are able to deactivate the robot. Harry Keitel's character is able to deactivate him, which this leads to him taking the robot into the lab again and disassembling him in the same manner that he was assembling him. And they do make a point, and this is something that's interesting and, and it kind of makes sense now. They do make a point of kind of lingering on the disassembling of the robot, the removal of the arms, the removal of the leg. You know, every piece, piece by piece, is kind of shown how he's taking it apart into pieces and what happens in the movie is that after he takes the robot apart you know to kind of calm everybody down and, and to stop the robot from going haywire i guess overnight or in a span of a couple of hours uh, the robot somehow reactivates itself even though it's disassembled and contacts other working robots in the area you know low-grade robots robotic arms robotic you know movable robots and they kind of start reassembling the robot again and now he's in I'm going to kill everybody mode <laughs> once he's back, you know, put into functioning uh, order. This leads to the scene where, once again, there's some kind of confrontation and the robot appears and he grabs Hyrie Keitel by the hand and just chops off his hand at that point and drags him away. And that's when we, as the audience, understand that something is happening, but it's happening off screen. Later on, we do get to see, you know, first we hear his voice because we hear his voice through the intercom system of uh, Harvey Keitel, but he's kind of giving orders kind of in a different tone, a very robotic tone, hint, hint. And then we see a video of his face, but we don't see his lips move. We just kind of hear his voice. Okay, interesting. And then when they finally do find them, like that I mentioned earlier, you know, his severed head is on top of the robot. The robot is, I guess, wearing Kaitel as a hat, <laughs> more or less. But apparently what happened was in the script, yeah, and they, I guess they filmed some of this, is that there is an entire sequence of the robot, I believe, taking Kaitel apart. In other words, he's doing the same thing that Harvey Keitel did to him, taking him apart, but instead he's just chopping, I guess, limbs, arms, and legs and stuff off him. And just like before, in the sequence, the hallucination sequence where Keitel gets uh, stabbed in the throat, they did not want that. The, again, the British censors or, or, or the producer knew from the beginning, no, we're not, we're not going in that direction. We can't have a scene like that so bloody. Because uh, remember, this is a sci-fi horror film. This is supposed to be... Even though it was shot around the same time, this was supposed to be kind of like an alien type of thing. You know, a very suspenseful, closed environment, being chased around in this haunted mansion, you know, and kind of thing. Obviously not a haunted mansion. Obviously, the uh, Star Wars was probably a big influence. Obviously, this is the late 80s. Everybody's recovering from the Star Wars wave and everybody wants to have big sci-fi type of films. On paper, this probably looked like a pretty interesting idea, you know, not... It's just that in execution, it became a mess because of so many different problems. The music uh, originally was recorded by Elmer Bernstein, a very famous music composer, and then it was scrapped. Most of it ended up in the cutting room floor. For some reason, they decided to go in a different direction. There are a couple of his 
beats in the movie, a couple of songs here and there on the background, but the majority hasn't, did not make it to the final cut of the film. Eventually, they did release the soundtrack, I believe, uh, in its full order. But, you know, you, again, you can also find those on YouTube. YouTube has the links for the original score. He did apparently experiment with some, like, rock and disco type of beats here or there. Maybe that's what made it a little too weird. And I think they mentioned something that in the sequence where they're kind of taking their drugs in the background, at some point you could hear them playing music, and then music is some of that weirder <laughs> Bernstein music that he had recorded. Apparently he did end up reusing the music, Elmer Bernstein, for the movie, if you remember, the animated film Heavy Metal. There's apparently a sequence where... I barely remember the music, but it's a very memorable film. There's a sequence where this uh, warrior kind of woman is getting ready to go into battle and she's dressing and whatever. Apparently, the music they played during that sequence is some of the music that Bernstein had originally recorded for Saturn 3. Special effects is also something that really, really is disappointing in this film. From what I'm reading, a lot of it had to do not so much with the availability of technology technology was there you know the company they used apparently was a pretty well-known company that was capable of doing really good effects but the the thing that seems to always come down to is money they did not have enough money so they had to kind of cheap out on the effects certain things look kind of okay certain things look awful and it is known that they used uh, a number of shots or special effects plates, let's say, uh, from Space 1999 backgrounds. They kind of recycled them to be able to use them. There's a sequence where their ship explodes. The robot orders their ship to explode so they can't escape. And the explosion is so fake. It is kind of like, it's almost like Star Trek you know, the original Star Trek kind of an explosion, the type of explosion that overlaps other stuff and you can see through it. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. The set design is one of the things that is the best thing about this movie, especially the entire opening sequence. This whole futuristic headquarter uh, launching pad section, it is so cool looking. It's so promising of how interesting it looks. It has a, a little bit of a Logan's Run type of uh, feel to it, but it is so crisp and artsy. Even the interiors of the of the base itself where Alex and Adam live, you know, those hallways look really good. They, they do have a little bit of an alien feel to it. It almost feels like you're inside the, like the skeleton of a whale. You know, you can, it almost looks like ribs, you know, the hallways low, they kind of look like ribs a little bit, which is a, it's an alien type of thing, especially on aliens. They really went all out with that design. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting how, in the making of the movie, you can kind of start to see where everything kind of falls apart. You watch the movie and you're like, oh, this is good. This is awful. This is kind of neat. And this is just junk. You know, you see all these shifting ups and downs of things that just don't mesh together. And part of it could have been the fact that you had the two directors. You know, one director started it and the other director finished it. Lack of money. Bizarre behavior by some of the actors and unusual choices of, you know, sequences that were removed or added or behaviors, you know, Douglas's insistence on and wanting to be naked for some of the film, you know, really weird, weird, weird stuff. But overall, it's one of these movies that it's kind of like a, you could kind of drop it into the guilty pleasures category of films, films that are, that are 
so bad that they're good, you know, kind of. And, and yeah, this one, I would say, it kind of falls under that category. And by looking at the making of this film, you get an entire other side that you might not have gotten just by watching the film. The film barely made its money back. I don't even know if it fully made its money back. It, uh, it's been available in just about every format you know, of home video. I think the last one was Blu-ray. There is a Blu-ray version floating around out there, I think from Shout Factory. Very good looking, super sharp. Some of the uh, clips are on YouTube also of, uh, you know, the promotional part of it. It does have some special features. I haven't been able to see that yet, all of the different special features. But some of them have been uploaded also to YouTube. So this is one that's definitely worth taking a look at just for the lunacy of it. And... I would suggest watching it with friends because you could kind of maybe turn this movie into some kind of a drinking game because there is such weird stuff going on that you're just going to be like, what? It's almost like everybody can record their own audio commentary while watching this film because it's something out of Mystery Science Theater at times. You can collect them all. You Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Today's a toy collectible. We are going to look at another Kenner line that is actually not Star Wars, but related to Star Wars, if you could say, because it is a Lucasfilm production that brought us this. I'm talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when it came out, it was this kind of a one-two punch, if you will, from a combination of, obviously, Lucas and Spielberg. And I remember that the only reason I got interested in it initially and if you think about it, it it's all marketing it's exactly what marketing's supposed to do not that i wouldn't have seen it if it wasn't for the marketing campaign but it is the type of thing that caught my eye right away and i remember whether it was the commercials or the posters or anything that featured that little tagline that said from the creators of star wars and jaws i believe that's what it said so it was like Star Wars and Jaws, and then I think I might have picked up the comic book, the, the comic book movie adaptation, which I'll eventually talk about at some point uh, in a future show, and it was like, oh, this is different, this is uh, not spaceships, and, you know, I was expecting spaceships, because I'm thinking Close Encounters too. you know, that's what I'm also thinking at the time, obviously Star Wars too, but it was completely different, obviously the reviews went through the roof, the, the movie was a complete, you know, monster hit, and Heck, it came time to merchandise. Now, what was important about the merchandising of this particular line is that, stylistically, it changed the Kenner look that we were all used to for action figures. Now, initially, I only had a few of these figures. I only have a few of them now. And the ones I have now are repurchases, obviously, because you heard my song and dance. I lost everything. 
through my different moves. So not too long ago, I started to reconstitute my collection. I should just play this on a loop every episode. So initially what I had was, I think I had, let me think, I had Indy, I had Toth, I had the Arab Swordsman, I had Belloc in his ceremonial outfit, and I had Indy from the map room. So those were my initial figures. The line didn't go crazy. Uh, there were more figures, and I'll, I'll give you a list of them. Uh, and I actually own actually one more than I used to right now. But you also had Marion in her Well of the Souls dress, let's say. You also have Sala, which is one of the ones I picked up recently. There's a non-ceremonial Belloc, if you will, which is him just wearing a, a white desert outfit. There's the indie dressed up as a German soldier figure. There's the mechanic, the big, burly, bold mechanic that Indy fights. And there is the uh, the monkey man, the guy that has the little monkey on his shoulder that's uh, trying to poison Indy, I think. <laughs> that's him. And you also kind of could include, if you were into kind of stretching the uh, the borders of what constitutes a figure, but which I've done before plenty of times for Star Wars, a mummy that comes with the... Well of the Souls, and there's a horse. They've actually made a, a a white, you know, like an Arabian white horse that is the one that Indy rides as he's chasing uh, the Ark on the truck. Some of these figures only came with certain sets. So, for example, the the Monkey Man only comes with the Streets of Cairo, you know, playset, and the Mummy only comes with the Well of the Souls, you know. There's certain things that only come with certain playsets. The map room indie comes with the map room, obviously. So, yeah, some of them were a little hard to find. And I do remember not seeing too many playsets or accessories. I did have an accessory. Obviously, I did, I did have the map room. But I really didn't go too crazy with Indiana Jones. I don't remember seeing the Well of the Souls or the truck or even the horse, to tell you the truth, or the Streets of Cairo uh, playset. I just do not remember seeing them. But... My interest did not, you know, go as crazy as it did with Star Wars. Star Wars really just kind of blew everything out of the water as far as I'm concerned. Which is ironic, in a way, because the quality of these figures, in a way, it is a lot better than the Star Wars design. First of all, these were kind of seven points of articulation designs. You know, if you remember Star Wars with the five points of articulation design, here what they introduced was knee joints. And that made them a lot more posable in a way. You know, Indy could ride his horse, for example, or you could sit them down in certain settings and that kind of thing. Also, some of the figures like Indy, and I think maybe even Toth, I'm not entirely sure, and I forget, some of them came with a spring-loaded arm. So Indy could kind of, you know, draw his gun fast. You know, you can make him spring that gun up and stuff like that. And some of the other figures had similar designs. So they, they were adding, you know, a little more modern technology, I guess, into the figure line. Most of them are complete plastic like Indy, but the ones that they added, soft goods, they did them really well. Marion, for example, she's got this full-blown dress that is very well done, which, you know, you don't see that kind of thing that early, you know, in the early 80s, you don't really see that sort of thing that early. Toth, on the other hand, he has the leather coat, but it's made out of plastic, so... 
it's kind of like the old style, but it is removable, so you could have him working without it. And he raises his hand, and in his hand you have the the, the burned image of the uh, the staff of Ra. I think it was the medallion. The Arab swordsman is probably one of the best ones. He's dressed exactly like the the Arab swordsman. He's got the same head scarf. He's got the sword. You know, he looks really cool. Allah has, again, soft goods that gave him a desert cloak kind of thing that, you know, when he's walking around in disguise. Let's see, Belloc, regular Belloc doesn't have much in terms of soft goods. No soft goods for Soldier Indy. No soft goods for the mechanic. Ceremonial Belloc has the soft goods as far as the robes he's wearing and the, he's got this like medallion, um, antique chest thing that he's wearing too. And also, Indy from the map room also is wearing a um, a white robe, uh, similar but not exactly like the one Salah has. And the monkey man, you know, the guy with the uh, patch in his eye who has the little pet monkey, he has a, a soft good uh, robe also, very colorful, similar to what we've seen in the movie. Now, all these figures come with plenty of accessories. Indy has obviously the whip and the gun. You know, there's there's lots of stuff here I can't go into. There's so many accessories. But they did not cheap out on accessories, at least, on this particular line. This line was also the same line, and it wasn't that big. You know, like I said, they never really went, I believe, in the route of Temple of Doom or any of the future films, as far as Kenner goes. Later on, yes, they did go into a lot of the other films under different uh, licenses. But what I'm talking about primarily here is the main, main Kenner line. The individual playsets, they were very well done too. The detail is pretty, pretty spot on, you know. Again, too bad it didn't really last that long because this would have been a nice growing line, especially when you take into account all the sequels that were made and all the different locations that these sequels could have you know, brought us as far as action figure goes, because they did such a good job with the original that, you know, it's really unusual that they didn't continue. The only other items that I could think of from around that time, at least that the Indiana Jones lines tried to capitalize on, was the 12-inch figure, which, if anybody remembers, was based on the Han Solo figure, because it was Kenner, so they were able to use the same mold. They just redressed them. And there was an actual box game called, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark game. You know, your typical box game. But again, this was a pretty cool line. Originally, the figures were about two bucks a piece, you know, so it was the early 80s. So you really couldn't go too crazy with the price. And like I mentioned before, eventually, after time went on, and the franchise kind of caught interest again. I know that many other lines, you know, Disney had its own line. So they were, the Indiana Jones toy line was revived a number of times. And they've done pretty good looking, you know, future figures. But this particular line, which, as I said earlier, I lost my initial one. And then I reconstituted part of it, you know, through eBay and that sort of thing. It was from a different time, but it is interesting to see the progression of the figures in terms of it's the same company, you know, it is Kenner, it is the same filmmakers, you know, you're talking about your Lucases and your Spielbergs here, so you kind of, you're already in that ballpark, more or less. But it's interesting to see how, you know, the quality changes, and they try to make themselves look different. I mean, like, yes, they could have gone the route of look, have them behave and act exactly like a Star Wars figure. A little stiffer, a little you know, five points of articulation, don't go too crazy with the soft goods. But here they wanted to make themselves look different. And I think they definitely succeeded in looking different, looking realistic. And 
again, it's one of these lines that, you know, you don't have to go that crazy looking for them. It's not a bare bones kind of line, like Clash of the Titans, for example, where all you got to do is collect, you know, five or six figures and you're done. And there's only a couple of larger toys available. Here, I would say you would take it up just one notch up because you have... About a dozen figures. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. You got about a dozen or so individual characters you could collect. Two, three play sets and maybe one larger one when it comes to the truck, for example. So it, it is one of these lines that, you know, if you're looking to complete it, you don't really have too many things to go crazy looking for. But because of the rarity of them, and again, if you're a completist, box or open kind of person it depends on how much money you're going to spend the actual loose figures you can find them pretty cheap you know that's how i got the ones i have now but if you want your stuff carded you know the story by now it could cost you some serious serious bucks so check your uh drawers you never know open those plastic bins there might be some indiana jones figures you know hiding in your closet all right well i hope you guys enjoy today's episode we had a look back at the film Saturn 3, which could really not be considered a classic in any shape or form, but it's definitely a fun film to watch. Uh, it is, as I mentioned before, mystery science theater material. And the backstory, like I mentioned, that is a whole other movie in itself of, you know, how a film behind the scenes starts to kind of fall apart. And we also looked at our Raiders of the Lost Ark action figure collection. No, not the Disney one, not those other, you know, false starts that they had at a certain point, but the actual original Kenner line and how it compared to some of our other bigger Kenner obsessions like Star Wars. But hopefully this is a line that you guys might be interested in one day start collecting on your own. So on behalf of everybody here, at the show. Thank you for listening, and we will see you real soon here at Geekfest France. Bye bye, everybody. Indy, over here. Indiana Jones at your service, Toad. Ah! <laughs> Indiana Jones and other action figures new from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection, each sold separately. Watch him, Cairo, swordsman. Yeah, watch my swing. Nice. All downhill from here, swordsman. You'll be sorry, Jones. Tricky again, Toad. Indiana Jones, Toad, and Cairo Swordsman action figures each sold separately from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection, new from Kenner. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs> <laughs>